Amen. Well, again, I'm grateful for uh, the privilege of being with you again this Sunday. We're looking at 1 Peter 3, verses 18 down to verse 22. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. That says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited, waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. First Peter is um, a unique book that must be understood to some degree, at least, uh, with this short narrative around this author. Uh, Peter, when we're first uh, introduced to him uh, in the Gospels, is actually called Simon. And later, uh, having come to know Jesus and to follow him, um, his name is changed. Uh, it's this beautiful depiction of what it means to come to know, love, and enjoy Jesus, and yet never be the same. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter this new name, which in the original languages is best understood as the rock. This new name was, in essence, the prophetic fulfillment of Peter's role in the formation of the early church. Peter is writing from Rome at the moment, and uh, he's getting some help from one of his homeboys, uh, Sylvanus, and together they are writing uh, to this really broad-reaching Christian community who were experiencing some pretty immense suffering. And Peter is writing because he hopes that this letter will serve as a source of encouragement. One really interesting historical detail is that we know that Peter and Paul were well aware of each other's work in ministry. Uh, Paul likely had inspired Peter to write in this way and under this same apostolic authority. But even this Sylvanus is likely the more formal name for Silas. Silas, the one who also served as a partner in ministry to the apostle Paul. Peter, though, opens this letter with a reminder that though they were spread apart, and even primarily a, a Gentile audience that could have possibly then made them uh, this unique various uh, of ethnicities. But yet they were united in suffering as the very family of God. Peter's argument for this unity is special though because he says that the one thing that we have that unites us is suffering. And I believe that there is some legitimacy to the credence that we have the ability to self-identify as members of the family of God because of the reality that we have 
all come to know some reality of ever-present suffering. As I studied the text this week, I was reminded much of the language often used called the empire. Um, while I think we mostly agree that the empire is will, uh, it's a systematic reality. But it's powerful to also then say the least. It's reflective of government and social economic structures and often the root cause of the division among us. And yet Peter and to those whom he wrote, they would agree that this empire is a very real reality. And in fact, it has a name called Rome. We get to this passage this morning following Peter through words of praise and adoration of the God who has in his mercy provided for us uh, a glorious inheritance that far exceeds the sufferings of this life. Christ, our mediator in prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament has been the model of suffering for us. In the likeness of Christ, Peter reveals that you and I have this future glorious promise of Christ's return, which only then promotes the need for you and I to live holy and righteous lives as we have now been redeemed by him from redeemed from this slavery to sin. It's imperative though too, unlike those within this empire of the world system that we live in this Christ-like love and affection for one another. Peter emphasizes the importance of this because he says that it impacts the unbelieving world around us. In verse 18, we read, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Fam, you gotta know that this verse is exactly what we need to hear this morning. I'm honestly always amazed at the seemingly endless idolatry of comfort and self-preservation in our churches today when we serve a God who has so graciously chosen to make himself known to us through unimaginable suffering. We serve a God who chose to redeem us by suffering for us. For Peter, it is our suffering that connects us to Jesus. And yet the reality stands that we've learned to live in pursuit of the adverse reality of suffering. Rome, this stark empire of Peter's world, uh, though they were not the originators of the crucifixion, uh, they had somehow managed to perfect it. They learned to maximize the heinous and gruesome nature of the cross, not only to add more to the torture of the physical body, but to serve as a deterrent for anyone watching. And today, the cross stands prominently in our churches. We wear it tattooed on our bodies. It's adorned in jewelry and on our clothing and far from the reality of Christ's suffering for us. With nails driven through his hands and his feet, the crucified would alternate the pressure at each point. This comes, though, just as Jesus has been so savagely beaten that I could not even find the words to describe it. 
but also then let's not forget the many pricks in his head from wearing a crown of thorns. As I was preparing for this text, my, my wife texted me. She says, don't forget that Jesus' suffering was a part of his humanity. So don't forget to tell them about the emotional and psychological toll. And yet the author of Hebrews tells us that looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let me ask you, church, where is your joy in suffering? Peter says that Jesus is the righteous for the unrighteous. In Isaiah 59 and 2, he says that our iniquities, which is our sin, is what separates us from God, which should be a harsh reminder that his suffering and death is one that you and I deserve. And yet, because he has been so gracious and kind to us, we can sing what love could have, could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without a bottom or a shore, our sins are many. His mercy is more. The verse concludes, though, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is why the gospel is such good news for us. It's the revelation that in Christ's substitutionary work, by his death, we have been made alive. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I'm sure verse 19, though, has many of us asking the same question. What? It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. One of the most common questions from the Apostles' Creed is actually answered by this particular verse as to what takes place in the three days in which Jesus was buried. I would suggest that the best understanding of this would reflect on Jesus being shown in scriptures, always teaching and leading people, a practice that did not change even in this brief visit to hell. And if you're wondering how Jesus could have found himself in hell, know that on the cross he bore our sin and held the rightful place for those separated by sin from God. Yet Jesus is bold. He is thoughtful and calculating. And to be in hell while Jesus was there had to be hell itself for Satan and his demons. 
This is why he is called Christ, our victor. He rises from the place of eternal damnation victorious. Verse 20, though, says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Notice the pivot that takes place in Peter's teaching. He's moving from an emphasis on the suffering of Jesus to the redemption made available to us in Jesus, and he demonstrates this with the story of Noah. True to our tradition, though, um, we talk a lot about movies in our preaching. Um, and I, I, I've got a, a movie reference today. Uh, it's Russell Crowe's movie, Noah. Uh, and it's actually a pretty terrible movie. Uh, it leaves you more with questions than answers. But it does show you to some degree Noah's steadfastness and his faithfulness. The commentators agree that Peter is likely simply seeking to connect the story of Noah with the current state of his people. So Noah and his people were a minority surrounded by a hostile unbelievers and the same Peter is experiencing in this moment. Noah sought to live righteously in the face of a wicked empire and Peter is writing to encourage us to pursue righteousness despite the pressures of the empire around us. And Noah knew that judgment was soon to come and Peter knows that our crucified savior is seated at the right hand of the father and he has promised to return for us. Noah's story of Passing through the waters of the flood in this way should lead us to never forget that God is at work in us and through us to bring about his purposes. Even in a world that seems deep in opposition to the faith in which we find our hope, we can be confident that Christ will soon return for us. Yet yeah, know that the wickedness of this world is not new. God doesn't see the news and find himself surprised to the sexual, sexual immorality, to the impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It was true in the days of Noah. It was true in the days of the early church, and it is still true for us. Let me assure you, though, that just as Paul does to this church in Galatia when he writes this list, know that for those who do these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 21, though, says Baptize, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reformed view of baptism finds its roots in the covenant promise initiated with Abraham in circumcision for which baptism becomes his sign and seal. A sign's value though is not found within itself, 
Rather, it points us towards something that is greater. Baptism signifies the way in which we are engrafted into the body of Christ and it seals us towards a lifetime of faith in him. It's a visible representation of our union by faith with Christ and one another. Peter says, though, that this baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know you might ask, how could both of these things be true? But look at what the basis of his teaching is. He says, hey, baptism saves you, but not simply in the way that water removes dirt from the body, but baptism saves as an appeal to a God for a good conscience. And this good conscience comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So know this, that the good conscience, the very basis of faith by which we come to be baptized is not because of anything in and of ourselves, but on the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. In the book, Practical Divinity, it reads, it says that a good conscience has God for its object. It respects his word, his will, and his worship. And therefore, it is called our consciousness towards God. Finally, then in verse 22, we read, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter comes full circle and pointing us back to Jesus. There is only one who has descended from heaven only to return to take a seat at the right hand of God the Father. I love how Hebrews 1 speaks of this truth as long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ now sits at the right hand of God the Father as his atoning work for us on the cross has satisfied the righteous wrath that you and I deserve. He now rules and reigns as the sovereign creator of the universe, having defeated the empires of this world making those once at enmity with God recipients of his kindness towards us. Hope, let me just as your brother remind you that even in our suffering, we've been called to do what is good. Why am I so hopeful that we can do this? Because I know that Christ has already given us his righteousness that he's taken upon himself my unrighteousness and imputed to us 
his righteousness. Like Noah who proclaimed the righteousness of God, even when it fell on deaf ears, know too that you and I are called to make much of him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for Christ's precious sacrifice for us. That he within himself endured so much suffering that we wouldn't have to endure it in that same way. Father, in the days ahead, would you, by your mercy, even though we suffer, would you draw us closer to you? Yet may we also, though, be reminded that it's in this experience of suffering that you call us to be united together as brothers and sisters in the very body of Christ. May we know you more fully and find joy in you alone. We thank you and praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.